0: The Pittsburgh Welcome, everybody, back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh. I'm the producer of the program. And with me, as always, is the host of the show, the founder of the Odd, Mysterious, and Fascinating History of Pittsburgh on Facebook, John Chalkowski.
1: Well, hello, everybody. In today's episode, we're going to dive deep into the life of a very fascinating and interesting woman in Pittsburgh history. And uh, her name is Elizabeth Cochran but many of you might know her as Nellie Bly way back when 1864 after the civil war, right? in Cochran Mills, PA named after her father who settled into the town and they named the town after him. Um, She was in a family of 15, believe it or not. <laughs> so uh, a lot of kids and uh, early in her life, uh, just growing up, going to regular school and, and uh by the time she was a teenager, her father passed away suddenly
0: yeah he he died when she was six, yeah, so that's fifteen yeah people. So fifteen people
1: that her mom had to take care of and uh or somehow figure out a way and um a uh, little uh Elizabeth Cochran at the time decided that she needed to do something you know other than just become a wife, right, which is what people assumed women would be doing back in those time periods. And she tried to do everything she could, and she eventually uh, moved with her family, Uh, the entire family, moved into Pittsburgh. And uh, while here, she ended up uh, deciding to get kind of like odd jobs here and there, and and wasn't really sure about what she really wanted to do, uh, per se. But she knew that she just didn't want to be doing women's work, per se. But sometimes the only jobs available for women were those women's work, and she got a job at a boarding house, kind of like a nursery, uh, helping out kids and you know, everything that goes along with the nursery, but.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's, um it's interesting because not only did Nellie lose her father when she was six, but her mother later divorced because the, the um, her stepfather. stepfather was abusing That's right. Yeah. Her that, mother.
1: That's absolutely right. So it's like a
0: double. A double whammy. Yes. Like that's not a, a way to be brought up. Yeah.
1: Room. And, you know, what do you do when it's 1870 and you're going through, you know, a, an abusive relationship, you know, your mother is, uh, with these 15 kids, you know, what do you do to survive? Uh, how do you, uh, help your mother? And, uh, and we, we do actually get into that a little bit later in this episode about, uh, how these early things that happened in her life kind of influenced her going forward, uh, and the way that she just thought about how women were treated and, uh, the role of a woman in and of itself. This, uh, while working at one of these boarding places, um, Reading the newspaper, just like everybody else did during the day, in the Pittsburgh Dispatch, was this article. Okay, said what women are good for. <laughs> right. It was written by a unanimous, I mean an anonymous writer, although it turned out to be the editor in chief of the Pittsburgh Dispatch, Erasmus Wilson. Now Erasmus Wilson has many other books and 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 letters and things that I even reference when I'm talking about the history of pittsburgh i mean he wrote one of the earliest histories of pittsburgh 1876 and uh i I read through it all the time i didn't realize it was actually the same guy which was interesting in and of itself well after reading this article which was so horrible i mean basically just told women to stay at home you know have babies cook and you know that's it (laughs) so uh no ambition whatsoever uh, other than just to kind of have your place at home, which is the opposite of what Nellie wanted, to the do. exact opposite, yeah. And uh, she was so, you know, disturbed by this article, as I'm sure most women were, uh, but she had the guts to speak up, and she decided to write a letter back to the Pittsburgh uh, Dispatch, the letter to the editor, and signing it "The Lonely Orphan Girl," wrote this rebuttal basically to this. Uh, nasty article that appeared in the paper saying, you know, women are good for a lot of things. And sometimes you might not know the situation, you know, like my own situation being, uh, you know, my father dying and going through this abusive stepfather relationship and, and, you know, having to make it on your own just in order to survive as your family and not necessarily go by these guidelines of women's work that you're saying in the paper. And, um, she immediately Rasmus Wilson was impressed Right. Not only that, that she had some kind of gumption to write the paper herself, which was considered uh, just bizarre not and of itself, because women back in the day did work in newspapers. OK, but they kind of just stayed in society columns or the fashion columns or, you know, did uh, concerts and things like that during the, you know, the week. Uh, but nothing really of any kind of substance. I mean, you could try to put as much substance as you could into a fashion article. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, but, uh, you know, where the real juice of all the stories was not going to be found in Pittsburgh's newest food recipe, you know, or, uh, what was going on at the theater on Saturday night. So he invited her, Elizabeth to come to the Pittsburgh dispatch offices and meet her in person. He comes in and he, uh, it he tells her like, look, you know, I'm thoroughly impressed. Um, could you write, I mean, obviously you could write. Uh, Is there a way you could do more of this or more stories? I'd like to offer you a job. And uh, she says, well, yes, that would be great. I mean, that would be such a cool thing to have a job working at the newspaper. He's like, yeah, but you're going to have to work on, um, you know, the society columns, the theater columns, the fashion columns, the the food, (laughs) and all the stuff you don't want to do because you're a woman. And she's like, well, you know, Maybe every once in a while I to write some kind of article. You know, I'd like to more investigate, you know, the, the conditions in, in, for women working in different fields and, and you know, a series of women in factories and, and you know, talk about the experience of a woman uh, other than at home. And he said, well, we'll see about that. So, you know, why don't you go ahead and write your uh, columns about the fashion of the day and call it a day. So she decides to keep and, you know, to do it because it's a job, it's cool it's what she wants to do you know she's very interested in writing she's just a good writer it's a foot in the door A foot in the door exactly but uh as time goes on she's just continuously uh, unhappy with the work that she's been presented with and, and not really getting any kind of good uh substance material and she goes to rasmith wilson and he goes you know look i i have an idea I, I would like to maybe uh go over to europe right maybe come to america immigrate to america but this time like kind of go on steerage and see what it's like from an immigrant's point of view <laughs> right and he's like what are you talking about are you, you crazy you know it's going to cost a fortune number one and you're a woman you know how how on earth are you going to be able to do this and he and she's like well I, I can do it i know i can do it you know just give me the opportunity to do it and he said you know i have a better idea why don't you go to mexico okay and i want you to report on what's going on in mexico and you could do kind of these field reports, and uh, and what she did, she took them off on that offer, went to Mexico, lived there for many months, and uh, was talking about all the different types of hardships and trials that Mexicans were just going through in general. And uh, they even published a book. Six months in Mexico was one of the books that she published while working here in Pittsburgh. Although the Mexican authorities soon learned about her report that she was making, they threatened her with arrest and prompted her to flee the country. <laughs> right. Uh, once she got back, of course, she flipped the switch and, uh, and kind of exposed the, the person who was a, basically a dictator and controlling the press in Mexico at that time. And although she was somewhat pleased, you know, with, with doing what she was doing there as a small expose, it just really wasn't hitting home, you know, and she was right back to writing the society columns and that's just not what she wanted to do. So, uh, she decided to just flat up, grab her stuff and quit move to new york city overnight with literally pennies to her name she walks into the office right of joseph pulitzer's newspaper the new york world and uh who knows how this meeting must have gone but i mean it must have been pretty interesting because it was like somehow she was able to convince these people that uh look you hire me the female reporter And I'll do anything you want me to do. You know, you want me to be, you know, go cover the elections, I'll go do that. You want me to do whatever, you know, except for the society columns. (laughs) You know, anything but. And uh, proliferating through the newspapers at that time period, you had uh, this insane asylum, which was uh, located on Blackwell's Island, okay, off of the shores of New York City. And it was a woman's prison, insane asylum. And became notorious in the newspapers for over the course of many months about the treatment of their prisoners and the treatment of the uh, the in, you know the inmates and uh, just the conditions of this place. It, it was almost impossible to figure out what was true, what was not true, who was telling the truth, who wasn't, were the doctors. I mean, you know, of course you talk to a doctor from the place. He's not going to say, oh, yeah, by the way, we have rats everywhere and mold and the food. <laughs> right. He uh, says, oh, everything's fine, you know, and nice happy smile and everybody would just ignore me well so she goes to the editors of the paper and she goes look let me go to blackwell island let me figure out what's really going on and write an expose on the conditions of the prison and the editor tells her you know look i have no idea how you're going to do this um i can't you know you can't just walk up to the door say hi i'm a reporter from the new york world and i'd like to find out your horrible conditions in the prison so like you had to figure out a way to kind of infiltrate without you being known as this you know reporter for the new york world yeah how do you plan on doing this and she was like well you know i don't really i don't really know but i think i got some ideas so she goes back home she starts uh practicing in the mirror right at home (laughs) you know like you know how am i gonna look insane (laughs) and uh because she realizes the only way she's going to get into this prison is to fake insanity herself, and to somehow be committed, for real, to, break, you know, to Blackwell's Island. Now the publisher made her a promise and said, you know, in a few weeks or you know, or one or two weeks, I will try to get you out. Go in there under the name Nellie Brown, and I'll know that's you, and uh, we'll do everything in our power to try to get you out as soon as we can. So she agrees to do it, and um, decides what's the first step of becoming insane so she decides to uh check into a a woman's boarding house in new york city and uh while there, kind of like play them as like a like a test kitchen right as a as a test for uh if she could prove to be insane to these women who uh then maybe she could be insane to the cops so she first night gets there and apparently while in her room That was open to everybody else. You know, there's other borders there, and they were sharing rooms. Just stared at the wall all night long, (laughs) right? It didn't say anything. And Now, she was nervous to begin with, but uh, this kind of made her suspicious. And some other people, uh, another girl there said that she had a dream that this Nellie Brown came to her with a knife in the middle of the night and was going to murder her. You You know, so... Uh, of course, that didn't happen. Uh, but the next day, she, she comes up and uh, she's telling the headmistress at this boarding place that, you know, hey, you know, I'm I'm crazy and you know <laughs> stuff like that, and was making such a f- uh, making the other women so uncomfortable that the cops had to been called, and they did. They came up, they wrestled her because uh, clearly she was belligerent or didn't know what was going on, even though she knew exactly what she was doing, and she goes and. Uh, it's taken to a, a small prison first, uh, seen by many doctors, eventually convincing them that she is indeed insane. Uh, it takes a couple days though. And, uh, finally they accept to move her to the Blackwell's Island and she plays dumb. She goes, Oh, it's Blackwell's Island. Island. That sounds very pretty. You know, an Island, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. Uh, this is like the last place you will ever see. And, um, boy, was that guy not wrong. She arrives there, um, goes through the standard intake process, is interviewed by doctors and nurses and uh, to try to prove her insanity. And she does prove them at least a little bit, which proves to her that these doctors are completely incompetent. You know, they can't tell an
0: insane person from a sane person. Or they're just looking to get people in there, namely women.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So pretty soon, as soon as you get there, you know, the typical things that happen in the same asylum start to happen. One, she's stripped naked. You throw her in a cold bath. You know, dump buckets of water on you. It's kind of an early form of water torture or waterboarding. Um, This is also a common cure for uh, insanity back in the day. I'd just be throwing in hot water, then throwing in cold water, throwing in hot water, throwing in cold water, you know, and just maybe it'll wake the insanity out of you somehow. <laughs> oh, if only that still worked. Yeah. It worked uh, in the first place. Exactly. Um, she talks about how the food was literally rotten that was presented to her, how from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. every single day, the women would be made to stand, you know, sit on these high-backed wooden chairs in a room, in a row, and just sit there all day long and do nothing, no news from the outside world, no, no doctor's visits, no anything, no talking was allowed, you said, sit there and stare at, you know, nothing for 12 hours a day. Uh, she pretty soon realized that if she doesn't get out of here, soon, <laughs> you know, she herself will go insane, because no sane person could, would be able to handle the pressures that were put under the, the people, the, the the inmates at this Blackwell's Island. And she even went as far as to uh, start interviewing some of the other girls that were there, and uh, some of them turned out to be perfectly sane. I mean, one was a German immigrant, and just because they they couldn't understand her, they committed her to the insane asylum because uh, that was just like their easy solution. Other people were uh, just down and out in their luck, and their family just had them committed because they didn't know where else to put their mother-in-law, <laughs> you know. So instead of the the shed out back or the mother-in-law suite, it was the good old insane asylum back in the day. Uh, you know, which is funny because I actually went to a warehouse down in Manchester uh, where they had all the property records for the city of Allegheny and city of Pittsburgh. And in there were the actual insane asylum registered books that gave a list of all the different people who were committed in Allegheny you know, County, basically, from, like, I think the 1850s to the 1870s. It was like a little small snapshot of kind of what, what was going on but it also gave not only the names of all the people but the reasons why they were committed and some of them believe it or not were that exact case their mother-in-law was old they didn't know what else to do so they committed her <laughs> you know um and it wasn't some kind of like rest home like it is today uh you know or some kind of like retirement community it was a legit insane asylum
0: well you kind of look at that as the state hospital system which recently broke up in the past you know 10 years or so was that was where they would send people yeah they would go to dixmont Dixmont or whatever you
1: know like all all the works and um you didn't really have to be that crazy really to get in i mean or at all yeah exactly or at all and that's exactly what was going on at this blackwell uh not only the food being rotten and all that and the conditions that the prisoners were being kept in i mean cold rooms you know in the winter it was just bad news so um almost immediately within a you know a few hours of being in this insane asylum, she decides to start, you know, drop the act and say, Hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly sane. You got the wrong girl. And and the doctors are like, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody says that. And uh, she found out that the more that she talks sane, the more they found her to be insane. And uh, she mentions that in her book that comes out later. So somehow, the New York world editors did not forget about her and were able through attorneys to get her out of the prison. Now, even while she was there, there was another reporter from a a competing newspaper who actually came to the prison to kind of just interview people and saw her and recognized her and said like, Oh my God, you're Nellie Bly. Right. And, uh, she's like, shh, you know, don't tell anybody, you know, this is, please don't expose, you know, what's going on here. I'll explain everything later, (laughs) you know? And, uh, he started to think like, well, this is the story of my life like you know this new writer from the world is now in the insane asylum and i can you know just write about that and um luckily he didn't although that story does still remain true
0: well she she like she remained in there for 10 days right? yeah
1: so she almost a week and a half you know she's there um most horrible experience of her life she later would say and uh and the book itself is free you can find it on google uh, just by typing ten days in a madhouse and I recommend that you actually do find it read it it's not a long read um, but it, it will give you a sense of her style her wit her um, fears uh, and, and her what she wanted to accomplish by going there
0: now well is it a book or is it just a series of pieces that is so she originally in she the-
1: comes out right and uh, within two days they published the first part of a series of exposes on the Blackwells Island which they later all Put together into a book called 10 Days in the Madhouse. Now, in each chapter, you know, significantly worse than the one before. Um, Through her efforts, her single efforts, and the fact that they published it, uh, changes were actually made. And New York State ended up forfeiting, or not forfeiting over, but giving uh, the state asylums over a million dollars in funding, uh, which is equal to about $25 million today and extra funding, and it, and they did go back to the prison later on and found that the food was fresh. They had new doctors, new nurses. Uh, prisoners or the inmates were fairly, they were better than they were off, you know, before, uh, not necessarily, you know, more sane, but the conditions were better and it was more humane and it was a success. And she, Nellie Bly, became an overnight sensation because of it. Um she was considered uh, you know, a hero uh, for exposing the, these problems and and what she was doing. Now, it's not nothing new, an expose. An expose has been around for 40 years before Nellie Bly came around. However, there was not any exposes written by a woman. Now, you could probably, I'm sure, if you looked hard enough, and uh, you probably find one or two, right? So I'm not going to say that she's the first, but She's definitely the most impactful and one of the first people to do a thing called stunt journalism. Now, stunt journalism is exactly what you think it is. Um, almost like uh, gonzo journalism, you know, as Hunter S. Thompson would later, uh, you know, do. Which was uh, kind of devote your entire being, your entire self, into your story. Yeah, you're going undercover. Basically, you're going undercover and assume a separate personality. Now, Elizabeth Cochran. Knew this, and she knew that Nellie Bly was not real, and she knew that this was a character that she created out of thin air, and she talks about this later in life, which is pretty interesting. In the fact that she uh, said, "Some sometimes, you know, your your story is not
0: what you want it to be." So I decided to write my own story. So <laughs> right? of your life, so Elizabeth Cochran, A.K.A. Nellie Bly, also played was Nellie Bly. And then took on another character, yeah, like Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder or something. Yeah, I, I, well,
1: yeah, well, not exactly like that, but yes. And um, this would later happen with Sinclair Lewis or um, that that famous expose called Black Like Me, which is also a Pittsburgh reporter who decided to, like you mentioned, <laughs> Tropic Thunder. Right, the man actually dyed his skin black and went undercover in the deep south to see what it was like. It was 1940s, I believe, that's when it happened.
0: Uh, I used to read this in English class. You yeah, know, it was cr- like a, it was a mandatory in a lot yeah, of cases.
1: Yeah, and it should be. You know, so, so, so should be Nellie Bly's material. Nellie Bly's material, it's a shame that it took so long for myself even just to find out who she really was and the stories that are attached to her because uh, I was pretty well familiar with the 10 Days in the Madhouse story but not so much familiar with the things that come after that.
0: Well, just to emphasize how important this is to the history of journalism, is that the museum, which is in washington dc it's this large four-story complex they have this 4d movie experience and three or four figures and one of them is edward r murrow who you know the journalism award is now named for basically mm-hmm. you can going to win a Amar- murrow award and another one of those important stories is Nellie bly in in that insane asylum in in new york
1: it was a sensation at the time and it still is to this day you know when you look into that story uh, of how people treated people. I now mean, everyone knew this was going on, you know. But how are you going to stop it? Just like you know, you show up to the door and say, "I'm a reporter." You know, they're all going to paint on their happy faces. <laughs> you know? So, how do you really get to the bottom of any story? And that's what Nellie Bly was good at. She was good at getting to the bottom of every single story she ever encountered. And uh, and why I mentioned before how Nellie Bly was a character is because the real life Elizabeth Cochran. You know, she was just a a girl. She was just a uh, someone struggling to get by, you know, on her own, and, and realized that if she could create some kind of alternate personality that was a hero, that was someone who always had a happy ending, that maybe somehow could loosely translate to her, her own life, or she could pull little things from her fictional character into her own life, which never really happened to her uh, throughout her life,
0: even though she was still. She was calling herself Nellie Bly. Mm-hmm. She was still Elizabeth Cocker. I mean, she was still smart. Yeah, and it was you can't make you can't go into a character and that's have right. Yeah. intelligence. In she it. was much
1: smarter than the average bear, and uh, she knew um, not only what would, would be successful in the papers by doing these exposés and things that were social issues of the day, including eventually later in life, women's suffrage, uh, but also what people wanted to hear. And uh, when she after the success of that story that came through and all the accomplishments that came from it, she was looking for like her second wind. You know, like, what do you do for your sequel if you already are super successful and everyone knows your name? How are you going to make it now, especially now that everyone knows who you are? <laughs> you know, how are you going to sneak back into some of these places? Uh, and she decides to go back to the New York world again and say, you know, there's, uh, one of my favorite stories is Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days. And, uh, I think I could maybe go around the world and beat that record. Now, up until that time, nobody's ever done it. Okay, this is 1888 we're talking about. And uh, the only person that did it was a fictional guy, you know, in Jules Verne's novel. And uh, the editor of the newspaper's like, well, you're crazy. You know, you're, number one, you're a woman. You can't go around How many bags of luggage are you going to bring? Okay, like you're nonstop kind of bugging her about the fact that she's a woman and how she's not going to be able to take care of herself. And she's basically like, screw you. <laughs> you know, I can do whatever I want. I'm a strong, independent woman, and I'm going to prove that to you. Give me the chance to do it, and I won't prove you wrong. I guarantee you, I'll beat that record. And so she um, he says, all right, you know, but beware. You're going to Singapore, <laughs> you know, Japan, Germany, Italy. Solo traveler. Okay, in 1888, where you think women are oppressed in America, wait until you get to China, you know. So uh, she's like, I, you know, I'm willing to take that that risk, and uh, let's do it. So she uh, took the dress that she was wearing, right, a sturdy overcoat, a couple changes of underwear, a little small little bag, uh, just with some face cream in it, and just went off on the road. that was it. Now, uh, the papers made a big deal about, like, well, what's she going to wear this whole entire time? Like how many, you know, uh, trunks of luggage is she bringing, like 15, (laughs) you know, four? Like what's the story, you know, like because that's all people seem to be fascinated about was what she looked like or what she was dressing as or anything but who she was, Uh, you know, just like anybody, uh, you know, your clothes or what you bring or whatever don't represent who you are per se, Uh, but that's kind of what the papers were sensationalizing about, uh, more so than her actual achievements of trying to accomplish a feat that has never been done before. She heads off, leaves New York City, starts going, I guess it would be east, right? Heads towards London and then Paris. And While in Paris, she actually meets Jules Verne and has dinner with him, and, and they talk about the you know, round the world in 80 days and the feat that she's trying to do. But unbeknownst to her, a competing newspaper hired another girl named Elizabeth Bisland. To go the other way. So leave California, San Francisco, and go west and try to beat Nellie Bly around the
0: globe. (laughs) Right? Oh, after they found out. Yeah, within a day.
1: In fact, they decided, they they found out when she was leaving and they decided to actually make this girl go in the exact same time and just the opposite side of America and see who does it first. Now, Nellie Bly had no idea that this was happening. Of course, this other girl did, and the other papers did because they followed each and every single little step, you know, that was going on the strip. But this girl was trying to do it herself. And, and her own story is a fascinating story in and of itself. But, um, not you know, I try to think of the movie Rat Race or something, you know, or uh, this Mad, 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 Mad World or whatever, like, you know, this race around the world. Uh, these two independent female reporters uh you know, shot out on this uh this journey which no one's ever completed uh as quick as they're claiming that they will. And pretty soon off they uh she finally doesn't realize that this girl was doing something until she gets to Hong Kong. And while in Hong Kong she learns about the other girl uh who's already there and already passed through and that she needs to get on a boat somehow quick and get back to America before it's too late. So while boarding the the boat um they now the, behind the scenes, the editor of The New York World actually hired a private train for her. So when she arrived in California, she would be, you know, without any kind of stops or anything, it would be able to get back to New York as quick as possible. And she was able to do it. And they, they started putting uh, ads in the newspaper of kind of like guess how many days, how many minutes, how many seconds that it took Manelli Bly to go across the globe. And if you could guess correctly, you would win a trip to Europe and and spending money along the way. So, I mean that's a great, you know,
0: award. That's uh, a great contest too.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and it seemed that the contest overweighed the actual accomplishment. By the time it was all said and done, they, they got so many responses of people trying to guess this, you know, the exact time and everything. I don't I don't know who actually won. It'd be fun to look that up, but um, it did. It took her seventy two
0: days, and she did it in seventy two days. 72 days, 6 hours, 11 minutes, and 14 seconds. There you
1: go. (laughs) So, how about that, right? Uh, The other girl, Elizabeth Bisland, she made it, but made it two days later. So, it was only just a
0: matter of time. You know, before that, she she also did it before 80 days, but two days after Nellie Bly. And a side note is in the next year, George Francis Train did it in 67 days. Oh, yeah. Keep on going
1: because eventually it gets to the point where people did it in less than 30 days. And um, men did it in 30 days. That's what I was going to say. They probably got upset that a woman did. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, how does this... Um, but it didn't... Yeah, you know, I mean, she, Nellie Bly was still a hero from doing this. And it wasn't like it didn't diminish the fact that she did it oh, and no. did it first. And the fact that she was a woman that did it made it even more of an accomplishment, especially during those time periods. Nellie Bly's accomplishments of that trip, she was supposed to write... A little uh, expose, you know, and just journal about what was going on and her experiences while traveling the world. However, the, which she did. However, it was all overshadowed by the, the, you know, the time stamp of her arriving, this other woman who was trying to compete with her, and the fact that she just did it in general, let alone what she was writing about. No one really even cares. <laughs> it was just, wow, you actually did it. They even made board games out of it. You could buy like an early Monopoly, you know, version of. <laughs> Nellie Bly traveling the world in 72 days and and kind of play along in the newspapers as time went on, which was just incredible to think about. So what happens to Nellie Bly? Where does she go after these two most famous stories in her life? You know, this around the world in 72 days and the 10 days at the madhouse. What do you think she does other than continue to write?
0: She'd continue to be a journalist.
1: Well, you'd think that, except when she was 31 years old. She decides to get married to a man named Robert Seaman, who owned an ironclad manufacturing, uh, basically a, a place that made milk metal milk bottles, <laughs> among many other things. Uh, Robert Seaman was th- 73 years old and her 31. So a little bizarre. Uh, I don't know if it was the whole Anna Nicole Smith type of thing going on or if it's truly love. You know, no one really knows. But within four years, uh, he was dead. <laughs> so, and she inherited his entire fortune, uh, of his ironclad business. Now I, I didn't bring it with me, but I actually do have her calling card from the ironclad manufacturing company. The the real thing that was handed out there in the 1904 Pan American exposition, uh, which is just cool to hold in your hands and be like, Oh my, you know, it says Nellie Bly on it. And, and she even used the name Nellie Bly, uh, as a way to kind of sell, you know, products. But, um, she did some other things other than just right there including invented when you think about the oil and gas industry and transporting oil and gas what do you put oil and gas in oil drum you know who invented the oil drums Nellie Bly. she holds the actual patent on the
0: 55 gallon oil drum which is still still used to this day it's still used to this day yeah that is what opec uses yeah (laughs) to distinguish the price per barrel of oil. And you got Nellie Bly to thank for that. How, how crazy is that? You know? So
1: she did that and uh, was able to, uh, I mean, makes, you know, become pretty successful after doing this. I mean, and it was uh, started a whole new chapter in her life. However, the people that she had work at one time had 1,500 people working underneath her at as the female-owned business. And she made a big fact about that. I mean, it says right on that business card that I have. He says, this is owned by Nellie Bly, a female, and this is iron business, and you're buying from a female-owned company. This is 1904. She soon, uh, after the success of their company, start, things started going on internally, and there was a, uh, a, a forgery um, problem that happened, and a, uh, what do they call it when you, uh, extortion. There was an extortion plot that happened within her company from other people that worked there, and it ran her out of business. And she ended up going bankrupt and lost everything that she had. Uh, later in life, she decided to go back to being a reporter, uh, worked for various newspapers all across the country, not just in New York now. She was doing some in Ohio. And, and she continued to talk about things in Pittsburgh as well, uh, that she has Pittsburgh-based stories. Uh, later, um, by 1920s, she started getting a little bit ill.
0: But by this time, she's in her late, you know, mid to late 50s, so it's not really that old. Yeah, she was writing about women's suffrage at the time, because this is around yeah. World War One, nineteen twenty 1920 yeah. era. Yeah,
1: exactly. And by 1922, she comes down with a case of just regular old pneumonia and passes away in the Bronx in New York City at the age of 57. So kind of a tragic end to Nellie Bly's life, uh, which began so fascinating. Um, and, and I want to mention some of the other stories and exposes that she did right because a lot of people might you know they know those two the 10 days in the madhouse and the and they around the world in 72 days but did you know that she also investigated a haunted house (laughs) yeah um she did i've read that article it's actually it's in the new york world and uh it's amazing this article is so funny you know (laughs) the humor that's added into it and saying how she's met 50 guys who wouldn't take her up on staying a night in this haunted house, this cat, literally a cabin in the middle of the woods uh, where she was, she decided to do it and go there and spend the night by herself. And she talks about the experience of like driving up to the cabin, you know, being dropped off basically uh, how the, there was a caretaker who just, who leaves her there, you know, and all the strange stories that were attached to this house and, and her just hearing noises throughout the night. And, and she just assumed it was all phony and she was really scaring herself by the time it was all done, you know, just your mind playing tricks on you, you know, by looking in the mirror, all of a sudden you see something or, you know, hearing in a creek, you know, in the ceiling. But it turned out, you know, the place wasn't haunted, but at least according to her. Uh, but she did. Well, oh, I would trust her. Yeah, I would. It, it, but she wrote lots of stories and lots of exposés. She really tried to get to the bottom of people's plight. And um, she did an exposé on prison,
0: just prison in general. And this is all before she left to marry the industrialist?
1: Before and after, so uh, I'll read you some of the titles of some of the articles that she published. And there, there's, there's, she didn't publish that many, but the ones that she did have, there is a list. Uh, here's one: an expose on learning ballet dancing. Interesting. She wrote a great story about old economy and the cult. You know that was involved there. We will do a show on old economy someday because that's just such a fascinating story on how this uh, sect of religion moves to Ambridge, PA. Or economy, I guess, and uh, starts their own little village, and s- somehow, you know, well, they didn't succeed, obviously, because they didn't believe in breeding. <laughs> and so it was, they uh, you all know, kind of died off, but she wrote, a, she was able to interview some of the surviving people of the colony. There were seven people left by the time she got there, and she was able to talk to them and kind of figure out who they were, and uh, just gives you a fascinating look at what, who these kind of people were, and uh, from a, a different angle, you know, an angle of Someone not really, as a reporter, as someone there trying to find the story and something that other people do not see, um, and and that really is the bottom line of her story is that she saw things that she was able to by having the journalism expertise to go in and somehow change, change for the better, and have try to have that happy ending or to to try to get some kind of solution. To the moral or the social issues that were going on at the time, I mean, another thing is uh, Nellie Bly on the stage as the title of the article, where she joins up as a chorus girl and she decides to see what vaudeville theaters like in the late 1890s, and uh, you know travels around, goes on stage, performs, uh, you know, goes to the dressing rooms, finds out about these people's families, and and tries to do like behind the scenes without people. Every time she had a different name. You should not use Nellie Bly to these people. I mean, she was, she even one time used Mrs. Stephen Foster. That's one of her uh, monikers or aliases. She had another one here called, uh, let's see here, visiting, visiting the Dispensaries, Working Girls Beware, Deaf, Dumb, and Blind, Nellie Bly as a Prisoner, Another Wicked Swindle, A Female Usher's Trick, Nellie Bly at West Point. Here's a fascinating one. Nellie Bly buys a baby, <laughs> where she uh, both went in to try to sell a fictional baby to this doctor who was willing to buy one, but also buy one herself, uh, and expose this weird underbelly of human trafficking that was going on in New York City uh, all the way back then. All of these sound amazing.
0: It's yeah. Interesting.
1: <laughs> Every single one of these stories. Here's another one with her, is, uh, uh becomes like a t- train's tigers for a day. Another one where she um, uh, works for a Hindu idol and uh, tries to get to the bottom of a Hindu, meaning uh, voodoo, you know, it's a form of voodoo, and she tries to to go in, like, somehow do an expose on voodoo cults, right, (laughs) from behind the scenes and join up with them and practice this witchcraft and, and, you know, part of the expose is you got to kind of be one of them, you know, you got to be like a... You know, not letting anybody catch who you really are, uh, which is uh, another thing about the homeless people. You know, there's ones here about the priest, uh, priesthood, ones about women in the priesthood. Um, also, of course, uh, you know, talking about suffrage and and just a lot of uh, immigrant problems. There's one called Serbian Woman Loses Everything in the War, as an as a article she wrote. So, I mean, so forward-thinking – for a a time period where to this day, I mean, you think of, you know, up to the 1950s, right? You still had that kind of notion of what a housewife is or what the women are supposed to do. And, you know, she's writing about Serbian refugees, you know, in New York City or uh, all these other tales. So it's like how there wasn't a movie made about, now there's little snippets, you know, made about 10 days in a madhouse or you know, little things here and there or drunk history episodes, right, about Nellie Bly. But they don't tell the real story. They don't tell the whole story. They don't tell you all these other things that she did, <laughs> all these different, um, you know, investigations that she tried to, uh, you know, help the homeless and, you know, help women's causes and, and, and really get to the bottom of the stories and expose them just like all of her other stories. It was not uh, – they weren't lesser just because they weren't as famous. Uh, they're still incredible to read. And well, uh, I recommend you just Google Nellie Bly articles. And you can find a source that somebody has transcribed some of these articles, or or look at the papers themselves.
0: So there was a movie that came out starring Christina Ricci called "Escaping the Madhouse: The Nellie Bly Story," but it was a Lifetime movie. Yeah, and nothing against Lifetime, but their movies seemed to be a little bit more dramatic. In the yeah you know, Craigslist killer, you know, I <laughs> should tell you everything you um, need to know. And but even if there was a Hollywood multi-million dollar production made. They probably wouldn't focus on these things like that. It would be true. A visit to the Madhouse. And around the, up world, the world,
1: maybe you know. And um maybe just those two things. I mean just like you, you Wikipedia her and or Google her, that's what you're gonna read about. You're not gonna read about these other stories.
0: And then maybe like fact, they make
1: no mention of them whatsoever yeah. in the Wikipedia. Um as far as you know, that's the only two stories she wrote, you know, according to Wikipedia. So it was like there's so much more to this woman. and 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 the interesting and just how she never let anybody stop doing what she did. Um, she didn't care who you were. She would just quit where she was and go work for somebody else because she knows the story was good. And she knew that what she was doing was noble and good work. And regardless of being a man or a woman, uh had nothing to do with it. I mean, the fact that she was a woman just hindered her really into becoming maybe the greatest journalist of all time. Um, you know, she was still stuck on doing some things that most be- maybe uh, women might be doing. Uh, however, it was uh just interesting to see how she kind of navigated these this fame the early fame because it was really her first story was this I mean she wrote those little society pieces in the Pittsburgh papers and that thing from Mexico but i mean what made her a household name uh other than the fact that everyone already knew what a Nellie Bly was and that was a Stephen Foster song i guess i should mention that <laughs> how she got her name in the first place uh just you know stephen foster you got to put yourself in perspective was like i don't know who you could compare him to you know the elton john the like the someone who was like 50 number one hits he was the beatles of his day. yeah yeah i mean he was the the main
0: he was the beatles of his
1: day he truly was he was all john paul paul george ringo in one man um now, died of a tragic life today uh, there's
0: some tra- controversy around him but
1: you, you know it's funny enough um we will do an episode on Stephen Foster, and it will be controversial, right? Um, and I have a great guest to bring on that will tackle that controversy, because you have to put yourself in perspective in the time period and how people did not have a voice of their own. The prime example is Nellie Bly. Nellie Bly's story, you know, telling the stories of others, people who did not have the opportunity to tell it themselves. And this is exactly how Stephen Foster thought. he He wasn't. I mean, uh, you know, the, of course, the racism was just talking about black, you know, entertainment in general was there. However, it, it was meant to tell people stories, and they weren't negative stories. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's interesting to see how it was twisted so quick when there was a statue, and then how it got twisted back to the reality and the truth behind the whole matter, which is what we'll talk about, and it will be an interesting episode, no doubt. <laughs> but one of his most popular story, you know, songs was a song called Nellie Bly. And uh, that's how she got her name. This girl from Pittsburgh, you know, nearby Cochrans Mill, right? who moves to Pittsburgh, and how she was able to not let anybody tell her no and that you can't do this because you're a woman. And she did it anyways. And did it successfully and better than most men. Don't let anyone tell you no. Do what is right. Do what is moral. And do what is
0: good. These are all lessons that we can learn from Nellie Bly. I hope you've learned them too. Well, John... Before we get to the end of the show, we've been promising people for weeks <laughs> that we will read their questions, and we finally are going to get to that. That's right. That's
1: right. In our brand new segment of Odd Questions, we will answer the public's question, the listeners' questions, and the odder, stranger, the better.
0: This is the one place you can come get and all we will say your answers. That's an odd question, but that's we're right. happy to answer it. We will have those answers, no matter how difficult. So.
1: As many listeners might know, um, who do already send me messages for years now, um, have been, uh, I get a lot of messages. <laughs> so I uh, I try to answer each and every single one as often as I possibly can, although I do get behind on answering questions because I get so many sometimes. Uh, a lot of them are very personal questions, like my great-grandmother did X and she lived at this street. Can you find me a picture of her house? You know, So I'll spend the extra time find a picture or a nearby picture, or if I can't find a picture, at least some kind of information that appears in the papers or anything related somehow to that person who they're asking about and, and set it off free of charge um, and answer the questions. And I, I've I've been doing this for years now, almost five years now. I've been answering uh, your most personal questions about family history in the Pittsburgh region. And I love doing those uh, because I find them just as fascinating as anybody else. I mean, I love a good mystery and, uh, you know, I love solving problems. I had one lady who contacted me who uh, never had uh, her parents died when she was very young and she was adopted by somebody else. But she knew her parents' names, but she didn't know anything about them other than the fact that they were somehow involved in a nightclub downtown Pittsburgh in like the 1930s. And uh, spent the time, found out, and I even found photos of her parents, the first one she's ever seen. <laughs> so uh some things like this you can find by answering questions uh and and it's incredible the uh the kind of behind the scenes things that that uh people ask and what I try to uh uh solve, you know, these mysteries on a daily basis. So we're only going to feature a few questions on each episode and I'm going to start with good old Sandy Hopkins who requested of the answer to this question is Ken Avenue in Pittsburgh, the steepest street in the world or in the United States. And the answer is both yes and no. So I say that because it definitely is the steepest street in Pittsburgh. It most likely is the steepest street in the United States. However, it is not the steepest street in the world. That goes to the Ford Pen-like in Wales. <laughs> so Canton Avenue is a 37% grade, and that's that's steep. You know, 50% is straight up and down. <laughs> so 37%, uh, the place in Wales is 37.45%. So they beat us, you know, somebody built some ramps and, and get that record back, you know, but according to the Ginsburg World Records, the place in Wales has us beat. Next question I'm going to answer answer is from kurt swanson he asked probably the question that most of us have always wanted to know what is the deal with the belt system in allegheny county
0: what are the belts andy can you name all the belts we have the blue belt the red belt the yellow belt the purple belt oh. and the green belt and the orange and belt. The orange yes
1: oh so that was pretty good you got you got you got them all so um do you know why they're there or what the purpose of them is? I do. Oh, okay. Interesting. Go ahead.
0: I believe that they were ways to get around the city. It was kind of like a belt. Like, if you look at the D.C. beltway, it's a giant circle. Mm-hmm. Um, That's as far as mine. <laughs> so maybe
1: I don't. So beltways are giant circles. Okay. Uh, so we got that. Well, yes and no. So at one time, they were planned as an alternate route to avoid downtown city traffic. And that's all they were. They they came first. They were around the 1940s and up into the 1950s. And this is pre, Parkway anything. You know before 79 was built and 279 and 376 and the works. Um, the way you could navigate the suburbs or around the city of Pittsburgh was to follow the belt system. Now you're correct in all the different colors. Uh, the purple belt being the one that is a uh, internal kind of uh, route, you know, which, uh, and believe it or not, as of 2014, none of them are circular in nature. <laughs> so they all stopped being belts in 2014. And I'm going to read you a little bit, a tiny little sentence about the what they are and how big they are. So the purple, blue, green, yellow, orange, and red belts travel distances of two miles, 38 miles, 39 miles, 78, 92, 34, and respectively. The purple, blue, and yellow belts are complete circular routes, beginning and ending at the same point. However, the orange belt was a complete circle up until about 12 miles at the southernmost stretch, including the entire stretch through Washington County, which was decommissioned in the 1970s to keep the belt system entirely within Allegheny County. So go ahead and navigate that system and come back to me when you uh, successfully do. Sounds now, like a
0: PennDOT detour.
1: You know, what's funny is the Rick Seebeck, uh did a whole little segment on the belt system, which is a great little documentary, and uh, the show that also was on WQED, the Dave and Dave. You remember? Oh yeah. They did the whole drive. They figured one day, well, let's just go to the beginning of the red belt and see where it ends, and wherever it takes us, that's where it takes us. And it's interesting. <laughs> so uh, someday, you know, you gotta. Uh, summer's still kind of around, you know, this, the time of the recording of this episode. And if you got nothing to do on a Sunday and you want to go for a nice drive, pick a belt. Uh, you know, and uh just see where the road takes you. And without further ado, that's it, Fort Pitt.